Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of May 22nd, 2022 from Adam McCampbell. Good morning. Awesome. Well, I am um, really grateful to get to be here this morning with you all. Um, as Alan said, this is, this is actually the first time I've got to preach in one of our local churches um, after getting here, so... Um, it's really exciting to get to do that. Um, outside of getting to teach the students every single week, uh, this is uh, one of the things I really, really enjoy doing. Uh, so I just kind of want to take a little bit, kind of tell you about myself, so you kind of know who I am. Uh, like I said, my name's Adam McCampbell. Uh, my, my wife, Kendall McCampbell, uh, we've been uh, married for almost five years now. Uh, we actually just had our, our first child uh, back in late October, so she's almost seven months old now, and so it's really exciting to uh, have, a, have a baby in the house. Uh, you know, when I started ministry, I, was a, I, was a, I started as a youth a pastor and uh, a youth minister, and so when I was, I remember going to camp, Alan, and I remember being really tired, you know, at camp, and I thought, man, this is, this is really bad, and then I had a, a, a child, and I thought, oh, <laughs> that's nothing compared to this, so uh, it's been fun, tiring, but we, we're really enjoying it. Uh, my wife, she's a Spanish teacher. Um, she's about to transition now. She had, actually had a job here locally in, in Darnell High School where she gets to teach some ESL and some critical reading. So she's really excited uh, about getting to do that. Um, and as Alan said, we just recently moved from, from Texas in College Station where we were ser- I was serving there in a local church as a missions minister. And then God's called us back home to Arkansas. We're both from uh, Whitehall, Pine Bluff area. We're both born and raised. And so we're excited to be back in, in Arkansas, out of Aggieland, and, you know, back into uh, where, where, where God is, right? So, um, so anyways, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 67, uh, and we're going to be reading this, this, this psalm this morning. This is a very good missional psalm, um, and I think one of the ways that I, as I was reading through it and, 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 and preparing through it, one of the things I was thinking through, I think this is a really good psalm to think of, um, uh, uh, one of the best ways to read it is to kind of think through and imagine a person from a UUPG, which stands for an unreached, unengaged people group. And simply what that means is an unreached, unengaged, meaning uh, when we coin an IMB, International Mission Boy, coins, uh, coins unreached, I mean less than 2% evangelical within that country, right? So less than 2% Christian there. If there's greater than 2%, they'll, they'll, they'll consider that reach because the church is great enough now to, to really reach that area. But less than 2%, but an unreached, unengaged means it's less than 2% within that people group, maybe sometimes even 0%. But what it means to unengage, it means there's no plan currently at, at, at hand to reach that people group. No one's really focusing there. No, one's, no, no missionaries living there, anything like that. So imagine uh, someone coming from a UUPG and they come to Christ. You know, the very first person from their people group, maybe from their family, and we think about from going back all the way to the Tower of Babel from where God confused the languages, right? And he, can, he, can, and he spread them all across the known world, right? And so from that time being, there's people groups now uh, in, in Nepal from every single valley in the Himalayas. They, speak, they don't speak Nepali. They speak a whole entire different language that's not spoken in the next valley. And there's a lot of places in the world like that where there's no written language or whatever it might be. And so when we start thinking about that from the Tower of Babel, from that all the way back before Abraham, uh, before God calls Abraham out, right, in Genesis 12, those people had, had stopped and ceased to hear about the God who created everything in that moment, right? So since the Tower of Babel, there are people who've never heard 
uh, God, had never heard about Abraham, had never heard about even the name of Jesus, right? Since the Tower of Babel, we can imagine that. And so imagine this, this person coming to Christ for the very first time, the first person in their family, the first person in the nation, the first person in their people group. Uh, and, and they come to a personal uh, relationship with Jesus. Imagine the joy they feel, the praise they give in their confession of sin and turning to Jesus. Because I want us to think about this psalmist for them. This psalmist for those people groups around the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. And this psalmist declaring God's heart for them. Declaring God's heart for us and what he wants our heart to be for the nations of the world and for those who are without Jesus. So let me read Psalm 67 for us this morning. This is what it says. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, so that your way may be known on earth, your saving, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples with fairness, or other, other translations say equity, and lead the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the earth has produced its harvest, or increase, or produce. God, our God, blesses us. God will bless us, and the ends of the earth will, will fear him. So the Psalm 67 gives us a picture of the future, of a, of the future reality. That's what this, this psalm is really getting at. It's, it is in this reality that we, that we are currently living, and already not yet. What simply that means is, Already we've experienced the victory, right? In Colossians 1 where it says uh, he, he, he claimed the victory by, by nailing sin to the cross with Jesus. And he, he claimed victory over everything. Jesus has already defeated sin. He's already defeated death. The victory has been made known at the cross, through the cross and his resurrection. So we're already experiencing the victory, but not yet because the resurrection hasn't happened, right? The end times, Revelations 20, hasn't come where the new heaven and new earth has been made. It's an already, but not yet, not fully, not completed, right? And so the psalmist here is help, helps us through to better understand this future reality we are still experiencing. The writer is going to give us here this future reality three ways. It's going to future reality described, a future reality applied, and a future reality accomplished, right? So we have to start thinking about, that's why I want to think about in the, in the terms of a, an unreached and engaged uh, people group or a person coming from that because of the psalmist writes, right? They're writing, he's writing pre-Christ. He's writing pre-cross, pre-resurrection, everything he's describing. So there's some things that he describes we kind of look back and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Jesus died on the cross for me. I've, I gave my life to him when I was seven or eight years old. I, I know what that means to have forgiveness of my sins. But back then, when this psalm was just reading, when someone who doesn't know Jesus is reading this psalm for the very first time, this is a, a totally new world what the psalm, the psalm is, is bringing out to us. So let's start writing, let's start reading uh, and going back through it in verse 1 and start talking about the future reality described. This is what it says in verses, verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. So when we see what, what Psalm is getting at, he's trying to get us, uh, help us understand two experiences that we're going to have that he's praying for, that he wants us to have. And so he says, number one, that we will experience his grace, his mercy, his grace, and his favor. That's what the word gracious means. It also means his mercy. That God is going to be merciful to us, not, not give us what we deserve, right? That's what a mercy, that's what grace means. He's not going to give us what we deserve. Rather, he's going to give us, he's going to bless us, he's going to give us his favor. So we're going to experience his, his mercy, his grace, his favor. But we're also going to experience his presence in favor. That's what it says, and make his face. So in, in Hebrew, the word face, it simply means, sometimes it means your physical face, but also means the presence of God. So what he's saying is that we may experience 
the presence of God. And what the psalms is getting at is not that we experience God's presence for a time being. Like when, when, when David prays in Psalms 51 after he, he sinned with Bathsheba, he says, God, do not remove your spirit from me. That's what David didn't want. That's what Psalm 51 kind of gets about, right? He said, I don't want your presence gone. Your presence, I'm anointed because I'm the king and you've anointed me with your spirit. He says, don't remove that presence from me. Well, we have the hope in Christ. The hope we have in Christ is that his spirit is always there, right? Always dwelling with us. It never leaves, right? So his Holy Spirit always dwells within us. And so what, he, what the psalmist is getting at here, he's saying that God's presence will be with us continually, never ending. So when someone's reading this, especially the psalmist writes before Christ, they're reading and says, what, what does it mean that God's presence will never leave me? How can a sinful man stand in the presence of God and, his, and, and, and God's presence dwell? How can, we, how can a sinful man experience God's presence and favor continually? We have to remember, remember at the cross, when Jesus is on the cross, right? It says that God turned his face away, right? Remember that? And he turned his face away. I mean, he turned his presence away from Jesus. Why? Because at the cross, right, Jesus begins to take all the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us and we might become the righteous of God. 1 Peter 2, 24, right, he bore our sins upon his body. He took, he became the physical embodiment of sin, right? So when the psalmist begins writing that we make his face shine upon us, what, here's what he's saying. This means that God's gracious favor will be biding with his people always. What he's trying to get at is that he's describing a future reality of sin fully removed. Where no longer does the sin apply to us, rather that sin has fully and completely been moved from Christ. May we experience his presence forever, never ending. Imagine, just for a second, imagine that that person who's never heard Jesus' Jesus' name before and in every other religion in the world, it, it, works, uh, it always works like this, where they have to go to pray or go to do whatever it is to appease their God. So in, in, in India... When I was a, a journeyman there, a missionary through the International Mission Board, uh, one thing I learned was, let's say, imagine a two-year-old, what they would do for a two-year-old, they would take the, the child in, they would shave all its hair off and, and, and lay that hair down before one of their gods to hope, hopefully appease that god, and that child would, would receive blessing, would receive you know, wealth and, and all those kind of things. So they're always trying to appease their god. And what's really interesting in, in Hindu culture, one of the things they do in India they always travel to a country called Hardiwar. It's one of their main religious cities. So there's a lot of temples there, a lot of gods. And what they do there is they, they go to the Ganges River. And so you have to understand, the Ganges River is one of the, it's kind of, it's a very holy river in India. It's actually one of the holiest rivers there. And, and it's very disgusting. It's kind of weird because they throw all the trash in there and all that kind of stuff. And what they'll do is they'll get into the water, uh, and they'll get in the water and they'll bathe there at Hardiwar. They'll get in the water and wash. But then they take jars, and they fill the, the jars up with all this water. They'll take it home. They'll drink it. They'll, they'll cook with it. They'll do everything with this nasty water. Because they're hoping to receive a Hindi, uh, this is, this is the Hindi, a Hindi word, mukti, which means salvation. They're hoping to receive some type of salvation from their God. Not an everlasting salvation. This is a temporary salvation. Because they continue to have to appease. But this water will somehow wash their sins off and give them mukti so they can appease their God. That's why they, they do that. And so the psalmist though is writing, not that I have to appease God, but that God is going to fully remove my sin. 
and his presence will dwell with me continually. We, I think we grow up in, in America, and sometimes we just don't really understand the vastness of that. We kind of grow up, and we were in church the moment, you know, we, we're, a lot of us were born, and we went to church as soon, as soon as, you know, right out of the womb, boom, we were in church the entire life. We didn't really know anything other than church. Or if we, we came to church later on in life, uh, uh, it was still something that wasn't very difficult for us to get. I think sometimes we, we just don't really realize the difference of understanding God's presence and what that means. And so he want, he's describing a future reality that sin fully removed. Not only is he describing this reality for the people of Israel, though, okay, but the psalmist is also describing this reality for all nations. So as Israel's reading this psalm, they're saying, hey, okay, this is great. God's saying this for me. But then he goes on in verse 2, and it says that, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. So he's simply saying, this is what, this, what, what's going to be known? Two things are going to be known here, right? God's way for all mankind, the way in which we will bring him glory and honor, that, that, that way that your, your ways, that's a, that's a mode, that's a course, the way we live, the way we're to walk, right? Uh, and the way we're supposed to live our lives according to God, the way we're to glorify him, that we see, like, uh, we go back to Exodus 19 when, when God called, uh, called the Israelites before he gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. He tells them, he tells Moses, tell the people, hey, I want the people to be my special possession, my treasure possession out of all the world. I want them to be my kingdom of priests to all nations. I want them to be holier than every, everybody else because I want them to represent who I am to the rest of the world. And what he's saying here, that's the same thing he's saying here, that we can know his ways, that way he's calling us to live our life that reflects his glory and makes him known that his ways will be known, right, on all the earth, not just his ways, but also your saving power among all nations. The removal of sin, right? His salvation. And so when he says this word, I'm going to know his ways, this word know is really special. It doesn't mean a knowing of, of knowledge. Like I, I sat in a class, my Sunday school class this morning, my life group, whatever it is, and I learned knowledge this morning, and I feel like I, I've, I've learned something new. It's more than just learning something. This word knowing here is about experience. I've experienced in a relationship. So before, imagine before the days of like GPS, iPhones, and Samsungs, and maps, and, and YouTube, and someone was trying to give us directions, or trying to ex- explain how to do something, right? Some people are really good at giving directions or explaining instructions, and some people are just really, really bad at it, right? And we kind of go through it, and they try to explain it to us, and then when we get done, we're like, I have no idea what they said, and we just try to kind of figure it out. But once I, I do that activity, or once I, I drive that route, all of a sudden, like, oh, okay, it makes sense to me. Now I get it, because why? I've experienced it. That's the same thing he's saying here. Rather than me hearing the law or hearing how I live, what he's saying is they're going to experience because they're going to be able to walk in the way that reflects God's glory. They're not just going to hear about God. They're not just going to be, have an encounter with God. They're going to fully experience him. They're going to know him. They're going to experience him in a way that they're going to have their sin fully removed. They're going to receive salvation. This is not just for Israel, but he says it's for the entire world. It's not just for the Western world, right? It's for all the countries in the world. It's for every single people group. It's for every single continent, every single nation, every single city, every single capital. Every single people group that has ever existed, that this truth is for them. They will know it by experience. They will know God. 
Psalms 46.10, right? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among all the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. People across from corner to corner, the uttermost parts of the world, will get to one day worship God because they will know him. So the psalmist simply here is declaring his prayer to God. He's, he's declaring his vocation to God, his calling to God. He's declaring his, his vision to God, who he wants to be. How amazing it is, the prayer, may God be gracious and bless us and make his face shine upon us. That your way be made known on earth, your saving power among all nations. But not only is he describing this future reality, but now he moves into that we have a future reality applied. And he says this in verse 3. He takes the same phrase in verse 3 and verse 5 and repeats it because this verse 3 and verse 5 are very, very important. And so when we read verse 3 and 5, it's helping, up, un, up, helping us understand the truth of verse 4. Okay? So verse 3 and 5 says this, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It's a repeated phrase, verse 3 and verse 5. So here's what, here's what it means. Simple enough, we see it here in the repeated phrase. Verse of Psalm, uh, the psalmist is simply pulling out one key truth, that the people praise God. We have to ask the question, though, what does this word praise mean? What does it mean? We, we read and think, oh, it means maybe singing a song, maybe it means worshiping God. But when we look at the Hebrew word, it does mean praise, but it also means something else. It means to praise and confess, especially confess or sin. In Psalms of... Uh, in 32.5, it says this, Then I acknowledge my sin to you, and you did not, cover my, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and he forgave the guilt of my sin. That all people would confess their sin and praise God for the goodness. The psalmist is calling for all to know Christ and salvation. So what he's saying here, let all the people's praise you, that all the people can confess their sin to God. That there's not a person in the world that doesn't have an opportunity to hear the name of Jesus, to have an opportunity to know what Christ has done upon the cross for them. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. What the psalmist is calling for is that may, when God's presence can remain in us eternally forever, right, that we experience him, that we can know him fully and completely, not only are we going to describe this reality, but this reality becomes applied to us because now I can confess my sins to him, right? And I can receive that salvation from Christ. It's a future reality applied that I can confess my sins. And so the psalmist wants the people to praise and confess their sin to God. That this person who's never heard the name of Jesus before in their entire life can praise God because they, they, they've confessed their sins. They asked for that forgiveness. They surrendered their life to Christ. How amazing is that? That's who the psalmist is writing towards. He's writing to, to those people who have never heard, who have never had an opportunity to put their faith and trust in Christ, that when they do, they can truly praise God because they have received the forgiveness of their sin before Christ that never existed. We never truly have forgiveness of all of our sins until Christ died on the cross, until he took and became our sin for us. He took our place. Remember, uh, when I was living in Texas, we were living in, in College Station, uh, and we would go to the college campus on Fridays, and we would hand out Bibles. And so I remember this has happened time and time again, but I just remember one example of a young uh, uh, Asian student from China 
had come and we gave him a Bible and talking about, it talks about Jesus and she had never heard what a Bible was. She never even heard what, who Jesus is. Be able to give her the Bible and be able to make it say, hey, we'd love to sit down and read this Bible with you, you know. Students are coming from all around the world and they've never heard. They never heard what a Bible is. They never read it. They never heard the name of Jesus. Can you imagine? The psalmist is writing that they may experience God's grace and blessing. That they can praise God because they receive the forgiveness of their sins, but only that they forgive their sins. He also prays them they can be glad and sing for joy. In verse 4, it says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why are they glad and singing for joy? Because they have experienced true salvation. It wasn't, it's no longer something held just for Israel alone, Isaiah 49, right? Where it says, too small a thing for you, for you to be for Jacob only. You're called to be a light to the Gentiles, which Paul says in Acts 13, and there in Pisidian Antioch. And so it says, the nations can be glad and sing for joy because they've heard the name of Jesus. They've been saved. They've had the forgiveness of their sins. They can sing and be glad for the, you judge the peoples with equity. You judge the peoples with fairness, meaning with levelness, Right? I judge them righteously, not based on what you can bring to the table, not based on how much money you have or how much you can pay me, not based on how, how, how good you are or how much you can earn, but simply based off uh, 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 this uprightness. And that, that word equity, that word justice simply means Jesus paid it. He became, in, in S, that plumb line, he became the one that says, I'm the line. So you don't have to earn anything to receive salvation. We simply turn to Christ right? That's what Jesus did. When it says the word justice in the Old Testament, when it says that God judges the, the, the people with, with equity, equity or with fairness, he says it's fair because Jesus paid the cost that you and I owed. I judge them with fairness, with equity, with level. You think like level on the wall when we want to make a picture level or something. Just level. There's no, there's nothing else to it. It's that simple. Level. For you judge the peoples with equity, and you guide the nations upon the earth. Not only will he judge the people, not only will, or will be judged based on whether or not, not based off my sin, but based off whether or not I've accepted Christ or not, right? Have I, do I know him in salvation, or do I not? I'll be judged based, based off that and only that. Not only that, but he also says he will guide the nations. He will lead the nations on the earth. He will lead us to know him more. He will lead us and walk in the way he's called us to. So the nations will be glad and sing for joy for two reasons we see here. That God judges people with, with people equally or here uprightly and level because Jesus took our place. He also leads the nations because he is a personal God. So who are, these, who are these people? Who are these nations, right? Which I've said over and over. Revelation 7, 9. It says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude and two that no one can count from every nation, tribe, People in language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing right ro ro robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who are these people that are going to be worshiping and singing for joy? People from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the promise that we have. That's what we look towards. Psalm, as a psalm writes, they're just simply looking to Jesus coming. They're looking to this, this future Messiah we're past the cross. I can look back at the cross and know what Jesus did, but now I look forward 
And I look to Revelations 5, 9, and 7, 9. People from every tribe, every tongue, and every, every nation. Exactly what Psalm 67 is declaring. That they can have salvation and relationship with God through Jesus. And now we know where we're heading. We know the destination. I didn't just receive Jesus to receive Jesus. I didn't receive salvation to receive salvation. I received it so that I could sing and be glad, but I could also take it to the nations that they could sing and be glad as well. But not only has this future reality been described and applied, but it's also been accomplished. Verse 6, as we finish up the psalm, it says this, The earth has yielded its increase, and God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the earth, ends of the earth, fear him. So what he was, what the psalmist getting at when he says the earth has yielded its increase? It's kind of an, an odd, odd saying, uh, especially here in this, this text. But it says the uses of yielding, yielding produce to help us, help us understand the true meaning of the future reality accomplished. It comes from Leviticus uh, 26.4. It says, Then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Right? It's using a farming analogy. Jesus did this all the time. He uses farming analogy. He uses agriculture. It's, it's really interesting. The Bible takes these, these key kingdom truths and it almost puts it into uh, this art of agriculture, which will never die. It's the one thing we'll never get rid of because we always have to eat. We'll always, always have agriculture in this world, right? And he hid the keys of the kingdom and the truths of the kingdom within this art, within, within agriculture. And so we can understand what he's saying. So he's not talking here about the earth-producing crop. What he, he's not talking about that. Rather, he's talking about geographical location or where the no, locate, where nations are located, earth. And he's talking about what's going to happen to the nations that they're going to produce, that they're going to increase, that we're going to see that harvest happen among them. That's what Jesus says in Luke 10 too. The harvest is plentiful, right? But the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he may send out laborers in the harvest. Or in John 4's story, when, when, the disciple, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, right? And he, she leaves and goes back into the village and tells them everything that happened. The disciples come back and they're urging them to eat food. And, and they, they have bought down in, in, in the village, in the city. And Jesus says, I have food you know nothing about. He says, look out in the field. You say it's four months of the harvest. I tell you, the, the, the field is ripe for harvest even now. And so what psalmist is declaring, what psalmist is saying is the earth has produced its harvest that those nations who have not heard Jesus will come to know Christ. They will see it produce. They will see them come to know. The nations will, of the earth will know the saving power of God through Jesus Christ. They will praise God because they confess their sins. How awesome is that? That's what we're seeing here in Psalms. It will happen. Jesus says it again, and we see in Revelation 9 that the vision that, that God gave to, to John, the disciple John, he saw people from every tribe, every tongue, and nation. We know where it's headed. It's not a question whether or not these nations that, that are out in the world, it's not a question whether they come to Christ or not. They will. We've already seen it. One person at least from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation are going to be around the throne representing God, and we get to be a part of that story. We get to be a part of what, what's going on. The nations of earth will know the saving power of God, but not only that, other core truth we're seeing here in the very end is that our God will become their God too. We will be, we'll all be one in Christ, one church, and we'll be on one mission. What's that mission? I think we see in the very last verse here, or last, last sentence. But all the earth, ends of the earth, fear him. That all people, 
We'll stand in all of him to know him in salvation, to be inspired and mobilized to go to the ends of the earth along with us. That becomes our aim. That every single people group, every nation upon the earth, every tribe, every tongue, that we, we may not be able to reach them all, right? That we do our due diligence and that where God has placed us and where God has put us, where God has put the nations around us or where I can go in the world and the world's become a lot smaller but with planes and everything else, we can get around every part of the world within less than 20, less than 20 hours. I can get anywhere in the world I want to go. And I can take the gospel to those nations that don't know Christ. So, the question I kind of wrote down as I read this, the question, the kind of final question I wrote down here was this. Does our prayer life, our day-to-day life, does our calling, our vision of life, does it line up here with the psalmist, what the psalmist is crying out? That, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that we will know that all people have an opportunity to know Christ. Does our life, our vision, our calling, our day-to-day life, our prayer life, does it line up with that? Are we, com- is, or is, we or is, your, is your complete self about making known to all people that God has fully removed our sin so that we can know and experience Him fully? Is that our, what our life is about? Or is it about something else? You know, I, I think sometimes we get caught up in just almost kind of churning out uh, everything, we have, we, everything we have to do in daily life. You know, having a nice house, a nice yard, uh, having the stuff that we have, and, and almost in this idea of enjoying. And I think it's really good to enjoy all the things that we, we get to enjoy in this world. But I think even for me, sometimes I, I get so caught up and wrapped up there that sometimes I forget about what God has saved me for. Where the rest of the world, maybe they are enjoying what their life, where they're at, but do they know Jesus? Are they getting an opportunity to hear what he has done for them? So does our prayer life, does our day-to-day life, our calling, our vision in life, is it lining up with the psalmist crying out? Is it lining up with what he's praying? That all people, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, can experience God's grace. Experience and know his presence. Because that's who the psalmist is writing this to. He's writing to every single nation, every people group. He's writing to those within our city. God's heart beats for the nation. He sent his son to die for the nations. So now are we living, how are we living to see these truths be made known among all nations? Maybe among London, among Russellville. What about among tech? How are we living our life to know where God has placed us here locally? One of the things I did in the final lesson I had for our students this semester was we, we walked to this psalm, and I made a challenge to them. We took this Psalm 67, and we changed it up a little bit, and we changed the word nations, we changed the word earth, we changed all those words, and we made it revolve around tech, to students, campus, Arkansas Tech, and we created a prayer just for that. And so here's how it reads. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known at tech. You're saving in power among all students. Let the campus praise you, O God, let all the campus praise you. Let students be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the campus with equity and guide the students upon tech. Let the campus praise you, O God, let all the campus praise you. The campus has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. 
let all tech fear him. That can be our prayer. And I put these prayer cards out in the lobby here on the table. And the challenge I have for the students will that would become their prayer every single day this summer. That when the school year old runs around, we're going we're gonna to walk out with expectation of saying, that's, that's what we want to see happen at tech. And God wants to see that out around the world. God also wants to see it locally here with our nearly 10,000 students that are, are, are on tech. I don't know how many international students will be here in the fall. I know past we had 75. This year, about 75 students. And my prayer is that we'll see back to the old number of 400 that we had, uh, they had pre-COVID. But our, let our prayer be what God's heartbeat is, that we can truly know him in a saving way, to have that experience, to have that knowledge of who he is, that our sin will fully be removed, and that we can praise God because he's transformed and he's changed us. That's my challenge for you today. My question for you is, does your life line up with what the psalmist writes? Does your vision, your calling, your day-to-day life, does your prayer life look like the psalmist's prayer life? That's the question. If our prayer life looks like that, that's the first step, right? And then our day-to-day life, how am I living my life in such a way that people can experience Christ through me, the way I live, the way I speak, the way I share the gospel to them? How are people seeing Jesus through me? How are they knowing Jesus through me? How can verses 3 and 5 be true that people around you, that they can praise God because they have confessed their sins to him and they know Christ, their son, as their Lord and Savior?